Hello there, everybody, viewers of The Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry, Brown University, uh, and I am with Mark Sussman. Uh, Mark is the editor of the newsletter at The Glenn Show and is a lecturer in uh, literature at uh, City University of New York, Hunter College. And uh, we're doing something a little bit unusual uh, today. We are having an encounter between Glenn Lowry 2022, that's me, and uh, the old Glenn Lowry of uh, two decades ago, uh, who is uh, going to be represented, as it were, by Mark, uh, uh, we're going to engage in a little back and forth between the old and the new Glenn. Uh, Mark will explain further how we're going to proceed. But uh, I hope you enjoy uh, this encounter between uh, the old and, and the, the new Glenn. Yeah, so uh, this... Um project has sort of developed over the last year or so um where glenn you were looking at some of your older lectures and of course the reissue of the anatomy of racial inequality um i think probably occasion for you like looking back over your older work and kind of considering the difference between where you were maybe around like you know, 20 years or so ago. And now, so we started going through some of that old material and we thought it'd be interesting to kind of uh, see how the new Glenn reacts to the old Glenn in real time. So what I've done is I've taken some uh, clips or I've cut up some clips from uh, a talk that you gave at Baruch College uh, in, I think, 2000, um, where you lay out um, I, it seems like a lot of what would become the anatomy of racial inequality, if I'm not mistaken. Let, let me just explain that, Mark, uh, because indeed okay. it is what would become the anatomy of racial inequality. So my book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, Harvard University Press, initially published 2002 based on lectures I gave at Harvard in 2000, the Du Bois lectures uh, at the Afro-American Studies uh, Department in Harvard in 2000. That was in April. And I think the fall of 2000, I was invited to uh, reprise those uh, lectures at, um, at Baruch College City University of New York, which I did do. Um, Harvard has decided to issue a second edition now, 20 years on, of those of the book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, which is basically reprinted as it had initially been published, but with a new um, preface from me uh, in which I reflect on how my thinking has evolved on the uh, subject of the book over the course of the 20 years. Um, and, you know, I'm in a different place. I'm in a very different place now than I was 20 years ago. And I, I thought it might be interesting for us to juxtapose those two uh, different approaches to the subject of the book. Uh, and you, you thought it was a good idea, too. So thanks for helping me out with that. Um, so, uh, I think what we're going to do is just like go straight into the clips. Um, I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you, but I, th or there's a little bit of interference, but I think we should be okay. Um, and okay. I've never uh, used this particular, oop, um, I've never, uh, used this aspect of Riverside, um, 
before in a live setting. So this should be pretty exciting to see if everything works out. I think it should be all right. So um, I'm not going to do too much intro. I kind of cut these to like have them be pretty self-explanatory. But Glenn, if you want to, after we listen, kind of provide a little bit of context, if you think it's necessary, we could do that. So um, this okay. is you talking about the, the development bias. Problem is I'm going to call development bias on my axiom of basically the same inherent capacity, I nevertheless observe different degrees of development of that capacity presented to the market. Development bias. Now you say, bias, Lowry, why do you call it bias? Whereas someone shows up at the employer and the employer says, no, I won't hire you, but I will hire him. That's bias. But someone shows up in the world and he gets nurtured and develops his talent and this one doesn't get nurtured and their talent doesn't develop. Why do you call that bias? I'm going to call it bias because I want to put as a matter of public responsibility the extent to which the avenues of human development are profoundly disparate, the opportunities for human, for the realization of a person's potential as human beings are profoundly disparate by race. That's my major move. Now, if you're going to argue with me, this is where it's going to happen. This is where your most effective argument will lie, in my opinion. How did I just make public a matter of what perhaps ought to be private? In other words, if the mother carries the infant and smokes cigarettes, we just know as a matter of public health research that the kid is going to be less swift on average. And if she drinks alcohol, that's going to be bad for the kid too. And if she does not verbalize to that kid while that kid is in the language learning critical months, that kid's language facility is not going to develop as well. We just know that. So now I've got a kid who was deprived almost from pre-birth of the opportunity to develop his or her full human potential by the behavior of her mother. Why did I call that development bias? Well, this is where I go back to my uh, attack or criticism of liberalism as being profoundly under-socialized. Where did the mother come from? How does she come to be where she is? What's the structure of her life? What were her opportunities? What kind of community did she grow up in? What kind of education did she have? And what about her parents? Now, there's going to be variation in human society across these sort of things. But when there's systematic and profound differences as large as what one can observe across racial groups, and when you have a history of racial hierarchy, in other words, the north side of Philadelphia did not just spring up with the the flowers this May. You know, it was a good 70 years in the making. West side of Chicago, same story. South central LA didn't just get there. There were decisions that were made. That structured social uh, reality that conditions the making of human beings. Now, I'm confronted with those human beings and I find them, let me use a provocative word, misshapen, pathological, dangerous, deficient. They bear children and don't marry. They carry MAC-10s or MAC-11s and Glock-9s or whatever they are and occasionally fire them off. Sometimes not even at each other. They score low. And darn it, we're going to be a state of standards. We're going to test our kids and make our schools accountable. They score low. What can I tell you? Right now I'm confronted with human beings who are in some way or another, from my point of view, inadequate. Inadequately developed 
They had the potential, but the structure of their circumstance did not admit of their full development. Yes, I want to say that's bias. That's bias when it plays out on a large scale across hundreds of thousands, across tens of millions of human beings, when it becomes institutionalized, when it gets reproduced over the generations, when the fact of it gets etched into our political life, right? the unspoken but commonly understood reality of the situation is that we've got some of these people in the you know, Wow. So what do you think of this guy? Quite a guy. I mean, I'm glad I don't have to debate him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of do. Isn't that why we're here? <laughs> yeah, that is why we're here. So maybe a little background. So I, I, I have this uh, uh, three-part uh, framework for the argument of the anatomy of racial inequality, the original argument. I say race is a social construct. I say that uh, I will eschew any essentialist account of racial inequality, any account that rests on presumed fundamental differences, genetic or otherwise, between the races. Uh, and I say that stigma against blackness is an intrinsic part of the racial landscape in American society, both historically and in uh, in the present. Those are my three axioms that I ground the argument in the book on. Um, and I'm at that point that you've referred to uh, here where I talk about development bias, I am uh, underscoring the importance of stigma as uh, a factor in accounting for persistent uh, racial disparities. And I'm and I'm socializing the responsibility for the behavioral problems that are real and that are implicated in uh, blacks' uh, persistent disadvantage for high crime rates, for low performance in schools, for uh, broken families, uh, et cetera. I'm conceding, in other words, the importance of cultural factors, but I'm attributing ultimately responsibility to, to those, uh, for those factors to, um, to the history of racial exclusion and domination. Now, this sounds very much like a contemporary structural racism argument, like the arguments that we hear coming from the, the woke uh, progressives uh, today. And I was making that argument 20 years ago. I don't make that argument in the same register today, and I'm asking myself now why, because do I really not believe today what I believed 20 years ago, which is that uh, the mother who smokes cigarettes and uh, drinks too much alcohol or the father who doesn't uh, properly contribute to the support of his children um, or, or any other, you know, the acting white uh, disdain that a peer group of uh, African-American youngsters might have toward uh, an interest in academic pursuits uh, or the gangs that are uh, attracting the attention of youngsters in, uh, you know, inner city Chicago or Detroit or Cleveland or Baltimore or St. Louis. And those kids end up with guns on the street. All of those behavioral factors that are like self-imposed limitations on the ability of the youngsters who are African-American to realize their full potential. Do I really not believe that they are nested within history 
that they are to some degree the fruit of American racial history. And I can't possibly deny today what was very clear to me 20 years ago, which that they are uh, a uh, product of the larger frame of American political economy and culture and social and racial domination. I, I can't deny that. But I'm not as uh, happy to rest on that on that today today as I talk in, as I do talk. I mean, in some of my contemporary writing and speaking, I'm constantly talking about development, but I'm using the words a little bit differently. I say I've got the development narrative and I've got the bias narrative. It's like I separate out the bias from the development, you know, and I say, if you guys talk about bias, you're putting it on white people. But if you talk about development, you're putting it on black people. And I want to put it on black people. I want to say the ball is in our court today. And, and I want to talk about agency. And uh, I want blacks to take responsibility for what we do with our children. And are these incompatible positions? Uh, I'm asking myself. I don't think they're necessarily incompatible. Uh, I think I, I think the agency thing, at least in my reading, and, and that is one of the reasons I wanted to select this is because I thought it was interesting that the, that separation happened for you at some point between development and bias. But it seems to me that it, it, it circulates around agency. That is your belief in the role of individual agency specifically seems to have changed at some point where I think you're right in that these two positions aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. The question is, what does one do once one finds oneself within this particular kind of history? And in saying that it's actually a public responsibility that we ask what produced the mother and why she uh, you know, behaves in the way that she does, you, that's where the shift has come, right? That you seem to think that we have certain responsibilities as a public, but maybe I'm wrong. It doesn't seem like you think that that's one of them anymore, or that for some reason that the public role in making that kind of intervention is no longer feasible or has proved itself ineffective or something like that. I think it may be more the latter. It may be that I have uh, lost uh belief in the feasibility, the political feasibility of pressing an argument to the country as a whole to take responsibility for the condition of social life, sociocultural uh, life uh, amongst African-Americans. Um, I mean, I give lip service to that idea in saying today things like um, this is a national, not merely a communal disgrace. That's that's a quote from a speech. Um, and uh, I have an essay in a volume that Danielle Allen, uh, the philosopher at Harvard, has edited. Uh, Difference Without Domination is the title of this uh, book. It's a collection of essays built around a conference that Danielle and Rohini Somanathan organized. And um, <laughs> Danielle is my editor. And, and she added uh, something that I allowed to stay in the piece, but she said, we are collectively responsible for the texture of our social relations. So, so it is an American phenomenon that African-American uh, segregated neighborhoods and segregated schools and whatnot is, is a feature of uh, 
of our contemporary social life. That's, that's a collective product, not merely a product of the doings of black people. Um, I, in my old age, though, I think I've, I've, I've grown weary of walking around with my hand out, as it were, with, you know, in, in the supplicant's stance, appealing to, quote unquote, white America to do the right thing. I, I feel like the clock is ticking, like uh, the society is moving on. Uh, I worry that 20 years from now, the degree of uh, influence that this kind of argument will have over uh, the American polity will be even less than it is today. And I, I think that it's uh, already, I think we can see that it's waning, notwithstanding the influence of the Black Lives Matter people and the structural race, race, racist people. I think that's ultimately not a winning hand that we're playing. Um, maybe it's a sense of desperation to some degree that I'm, I'm, I'm now a last gasp kind of, come on, people, we've got we've to do this ourselves. Nobody's coming to save us. That's another one of my lines. Nobody's coming to save us. Um, so, I, you know, this is, this is going to be maybe not persuasive to you, Mark. <laughs> um, I can dis distinguish between pragmatic advice about political mobilization and activism on the one hand and a kind of uh, distanced uh, philosopher's stand, a more of an academic assessment on the other. And uh, maybe I want to put that 20-year-old uh, framework in the category of being a, 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 an academic and kind of theoretical development. And maybe I want to put my more Hart knows contemporary uh, position in the category of being uh, a uh, you know the ex existential imperative of our time for African Americans is to get busy uh, taking care of our own business because nobody's coming to save us. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to move on to the next clip in a minute, but yeah. I you're sitting here and there's so many issues that you're bringing up. I. I think it's a little bit funny that that you're thinking of this as something like you you have to convince me of something or that uh you know we're we're in this uh, conversation and I'm here to be convinced because I to me I I think it, um one of the things that's so interesting about your way of thinking about this or how the way that you're thinking about this has changed it seems first of all like when what you mean by collective seems to have shifted a little bit and what you mean by public seems to have shifted a little bit in the sense that now the role of the nation, like as a nation, um, and you can see this in your speech about black patriotism as well, seems to have filled that role, right? That is, what do we mean by public? Well, we mean something like a nation, something that demands a certain kind of, you know, identification from its individual constituents. And... Um, I think that that's, uh, I think there's something maybe a little bit under theorized about, about that move. Right. Um, and it's not surprising. It's a very difficult thing to conceptualize what we mean when we say public responsibility, what we mean when we see, say individual responsibility, if we have no way of really kind of thinking through the details of where the line between individuals and quote, the public, uh, is drawn. And that's where the nation seems to have come in for you, I, at least in my reading, um, seems to have stepped in. And 
when we start thinking about ourselves as sort of members of nations that all kinds of other subsidiary identifications can kind of wane a little bit. I wonder if that's one way of sort of tracking how you've moved from one position to another. I'm not sure I understand that different notions about what we mean when we say public and you say just to play it out. What do you understand me to have meant by that 20 years ago? And what do you understand me to mean by that today? 20 years ago is a lot harder for me to kind of get my hands around than today. Um, because I'm asking, do we mean like public as in like, in the sense that we're all taxpayers who pay into a public fund? Do we mean it's our public responsibility to to sort of deal with these issues um, insofar as we are part of a kind of felt, embodied, and lived community? Like when I walk outside my door today, I'm going to be sort of among members of my community and I have a responsibility to them in that sense. Like what, do, what does it mean? How does that responsibility take shape? That's a question for the old Glenn that I have that, that is a kind of lingering to me. It's probably answered somewhere that's not here in a satisfactory way. But my, 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 the second question for the, or my, my sort of kind of hypothesis about the new Glenn is that there's a very clearly defined sense of what is meant by public. And that is like, and that's sort of like the role of the nation, like that, in that we're all members of a nation. And, and, and that means that we're all participants in a kind of collective project that requires that different things of us, right? Than being member, that if we thought about ourselves as all like sort of members of a sort of more or less local community that had to take care of the people around us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But, but it seems to point in the wrong direction <laughs> in the sense that uh, if, if I take the nation as the, as the uh, object of my uh, appeal for action, don't I necessarily then have to affirm uh, the, the position of the racial liberals today who are saying um, that, uh, you know, the disparities that we see are really the responsibility of the of the of the larger public and and you can't expect black people to solve these problems on our own whereas my instinct is to say whether we can solve the problems on our own or not we have to take responsibility for our for our for our lives uh, no I don't I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't I don't think so um I, I I do really want to move on to the next clip but I don't think so in the sense that like you know it's a kind of the nation it's like a sort of overdetermined concept right you can say that it has that we all have that, you know, that kind of liberal responsibility then quote unquote to, you know, what you, you your kind of first point, or you could say that it's inverse, right? That we as individuals have a responsibility to the nation, right? And that involves, you, uh, know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Maybe, and I think we should move on. Another way of looking at it is who's my audience? Who am I talking to? For sure. Am I talking to we? Black people, or am I talking to we Americans? Mm -hmm. It seems pretty clear that in 2000 uh, at Baruch College, I was talking to we Americans. Uh, and it often feels 
today when I'm ranting at the Glenn show about this or that aspect of this pathological aspect, like the criminal violence in the cities. And I'm saying, I'm saying to we black people or to we black leaders or to we black intellectuals, when I'm inveighing against the Ibram X Kendi's and the Tanahasi cultures of the world, I'm, I'm not talking to we Americans broadly. I'm talking to we black people. Don't follow those people. Don't read those books. Don't, don't, you know, mouth those platitudes. Or I think you, you would know. probably say, argue with those books, not don't. Yeah, argue, I, I would say yeah. that's right. I would say that. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's move on to our next clip. I gave these weird okay. titles, so I'm not 100% sure what is in any of these clips. I kind of forget. So this will be exciting for both of us. The temptation to preach here is too great, and I'll yield to it just to this extent. <laughs> just to this extent. Okay. We got a race problem in America, now everybody knows that. Basically, you've got this kind of argument going on on the right. Why don't you people stop thinking in those terms? Don't you know race is over? In other words, why don't I rewrite the story of what my family did in Stockyard, Chicago in the 1920s and 30s? Why don't I re-understand what happened when those folks went down to Mississippi in the 1960s and tried to do what they tried to do? Why don't I just take that ghetto that I grew up in, in which everybody I knew until I was 15 years old was a black person, and rethink it because race is over? I mean, you would never tell the disputants on either side of a religious divide that the war would end tomorrow if one of you would stop worshiping those false gods. And yet African Americans are told today that they need to stop being, quote, obsessed, close quote, about what is, in fact, at the sociological and anthropological level, an organizing principle of the founding of the nation that has shaped the experience of them and their forebears in profound ways. That they would infuse these arbitrary markers with meaning, that tears would come to their eyes when they hear the spiritual song that represent the hopes and strivings of their people over the generations, that they would hope that their children would go forward and do something for, quote, our people, close quote, that they would feel pride in the accomplishments and shame in the degradation of their own. This is not a mystery. This doesn't require explanation. It only requires explanation if the larger political context wants to sweep the problem under the rug and load the ethical burden onto the backs of the weakest people to carry it. Right? If we want to stop being raced, then the polemical line would be, let white people give up the wages of whiteness. That would be the polemical line, but I'm here to give a serious lecture. I hope you see what I'm gesturing at, though, with that polemical comment. I hope you see what I'm gesturing at. What I'm gesturing at is that the, the historical, political, economic foundations of the country have been built around these arbitrary markers. Rents have been created, what economists would say. Rents have been created, okay? And they've been taken down. And they've been invested, and they've been rolled over, and they've been passed on across generations, right? And so great metropolis like the city of Detroit, the Thomas Sagru, profound historian, Bancroft Prize-winning book a couple years ago, The Origin of the Urban Crisis, Race and Class in Post-War Detroit. He wants to understand where, if you like, Detroit came from. Now, we know you get to Detroit by the time Coleman Mayer becomes mayor of Detroit, and it's a mess. It's politics, it's economics, it's the, the, the city is a mess. It's going down the tubes. Population is plummeting. And the city core is uh, bombed out. Crime, drugs, devil night, rioting, et cetera, et cetera. So Detroit's a mess. Politics are a mess. Nasty central city versus suburban politics with a race man mayor playing the race card every chance he gets. Right? 
So Sagru, being a good historian, wants to understand where the city came from. You know, in other words, being a serious scholar of the history of American society, he's not content simply to engage in rhetorical argument and throw around names at people. Oh, these racists, they're black racists, that is to say. No, yeah, so, so he wants to know something about what the auto industry was doing in the 1930s. He wants us to know something about how those Slavs reacted when the blacks started coming up from the South in the 1940s. You know, he wants to understand something about the politics of the city, about the economics of the city, about its geography, and about the role that race played in the making of Detroit. His bottom line is that race played a profound role in the making of Detroit. I would say to you now, if we want to understand Detroit, and of course Detroit just stands in here for a much larger frame, today, it's going to be hard to do it right if we're going to abstract from the role that race has played in that history. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see anything to argue with with that, brother. I mean, uh, race is over. Let's just move on. Let's stop talking about race. I mean, now it's true that you can find me sometimes saying with Mark Lilla, uh, a once and future liberal author, Mark Lilla, that identity politics uh, is uh, sometimes much overdone and that we need to be framing the issues that we want to uh, grapple with in American politics much more in class than in racial terms. And you can hear me extolling the virtues of transracial humanism and this kind of philosophical idea. Uh, but I am now 20 years down the line, still a race man. I mean, I'm still a black intellectual. I'm still very self-consciously trying to further the well-being of, quote-unquote, my people, understanding that in both the civic sense of my American national uh, responsibilities, but also in the communal sense of my fellow Black people. When I was asked by uh, an interviewer recently, this is Peter Robinson, uh, the Hoover Institution uh, uh, journalist, uh, you know, he says, why do you bother, you, you know, you're, you're a man of the world, you, you, you're, you know, you can uh, do what you want to do. You don't have to talk about racial issues. I say, I still hear a call of the tribe. I, I still hear a call of the tribe, and I'm to some degree responsive to it. Um, I recall the story of my, my late uncle Alfred taking me aside, oh, man, 30 years ago, maybe even more, and saying, we could only send one from the south side of Chicago off to the Ivy League. We sent you, and we don't see us in anything you do, he said to me. And it broke my heart when he said it because I wanted to be, in his mind, a fulfillment of this, you know, aspiration of our people to make it in America. So I'm still black. I'm not, I'm not going to not be black, you know. <laughs> uh, so when someone says colorblind and they're they're glib about the whole thing. They say, why, why do you people still cling to your blackness? Why are you always talking about there are no black people on TV or there are not enough black people in the movies or something like that? Why, why, why do you care about the Barack Hussein Obama becoming the first black president? Why does that bring tears to your eyes or whatever? I think I'd be just as inclined today as I would have been when I gave that lecture to say, well, that's because our sense of of, of being, of, of self-understanding is drenching in, in raciality. It's, it's uh, inescapably 
uh, framed in, in that way. Don't ask me to not be black. Uh, that's not quite the same thing, however, as saying that the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, mania that grips so many institutions now in the aftermath of the uh, summer of 2020 and George Floyd and all of that is something that I can affirm. Or in saying that if a police officer who is white uh, chokes the life out of a, a black young man, uh, that the first uh, way that I want to try to talk about that problem is to compare it to the lynching of Emmett Till and to invoke the mournful uh, recitation of all of the a litany of, uh, of offenses against black people. Uh, it, it may be both prudent and in a way more constructive to understand that as a problem of police authority, which can be abused regardless of the race of the person who's the subject of it and so on. So, uh, you know, the, the affirmative action debate, which was alive and well in 2000, there were, you know, lawsuits back then, just like there are lawsuits now about higher education and whatnot. And I was very keen in supporting uh, affirmative action in the years at the end of the 90s and in the early aughts. I, I was actively involved with the, the Mellon Foundation, uh, William Bowen, the former president of Princeton University, deceased now, but at the time a president of the Mellon Foundation, uh, supported some of my research. I, I wrote papers, did uh, quantitative research, wrote a foreword to their book, uh, The Shape of the River, um, defending uh, affirmative action in higher education. And I've soured uh, on affirmative action. Uh, I could go into the reasons why. That's not exactly the subject of, of, the, of the issue here, I think. More about racial identity, but uh, so, so some of my views about policies have shifted in terms of the emphasis on racial identity, but my sense of, of uh, belonging to a people, quote unquote, a people forged in the cauldron of slavery and post-emancipation struggle uh, that uh, you know, I uh, came up with uh, on the south side of Chicago after the Second World War. I'm going to carry that to my grave. That all <clears throat> makes sense to me. And I think that, you know, there's a kind of certain bad faith version of the colorblind argument. Yeah. Right. That you're saying, of course, doesn't hold any water. And it's it's really just a, it, it's 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 sort of meaningless. Um, but the the kind of what you've referred to recently as transracial humanism, that's the thing that I think has the most interesting tension between your, you know, your stated affiliations with with your race, because it makes a kind of intuitive sense to me. Um, you know, it makes a kind of intuitive sense to be like, well, of course, I have my affiliations and I have the 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 things that shape me as a as an individual and those are tribal in some way, but that's not necessarily the way things like work for me and my individual associations aren't necessarily the best thing for when we're thinking about how to organize society and we're thinking about how to, you know, kind of create different incentives for doing X, Y, and Z. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing to do at the macro level. Um, and both of those things can be true, right? Um, right. 
and and the you know the reparations debate i mean comes up here i alluded to it indirectly in the in the quote that uh you've uh, played from 20 years ago where i say the wages of whiteness the rents have been taken down they've been rolled over they've been passed on uh and of course you can complete that thought by saying uh and we black people were left out at one juncture after another and we're do something and today i wouldn't say that i'm i'm against reparations uh on race and i'm against it because i think it frames the policy for the country wrongly by dividing us up into these different racially defined groups within the polity and then having a quid pro quo a kind of transactional politics across racial lines uh, that's arguable there are many people who disagree with me about that i could be wrong about it but it's not inconsistent with a sense of black identity and and belonging to an ethnos uh defined around my race those those are judgments about the national political uh, order as distinct from a sense of personal identity and belonging to an, a, a racial ethnic uh, group, if that makes any sense. No, that makes total sense to me. Um, I mean, you know, I think I would probably have a different way of sort of drawing the line of where you, but where you, you know, where you say it's no... It, we don't we, we're no longer going to sort of like formalize this uh that kind of association you know i had another question i don't really know how to phrase it but i thought about it constantly as i was going through this this lecture which is the affect your affect is so different and the way you present this right you know the in terms of the language you it's the same guy right the way you're kind of like the rhetorical flair, that's all there. But the affect is totally different. Can you t talk to me about this? Well, I mean, consider the setting. I was at Baruch. Now, this in, in the year is 2000. So, you know, it's not, ex it, it's, it's uh, a little bit of a hotbed of neoconservative neo uh, stuff going on there, you know. And uh, it's it's New York City. It's it's New York City. It's an ethnic institution. They they are, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I kind of felt like I was walking in to a, a slightly unsympathetic crowd if I was going to be making a race based argument. And I can I'm I just say you relish yeah. this. You clearly love some aspect of of this. You seem yeah. to really like that you're walking in there and you're going to tell these people a bunch of stuff they don't want to hear. Exactly. <laughs> I, and I'm going to do it with exquisite eloquence. I'm going to do it with logic and, and, and power and presentation. You know, they're going to have to deal with me. They're not going to be able to write me off. There's, they, something not gonna be able to... there's something about that, though, that, see, that just really wins people over. You know what I mean? Like your love of the fight is something that people, I don't know. It's this funny paradoxical thing where you walk in and you're like, I'm going to like, I've got all my, I got all my tools laid out and I'm just going to sort of disassemble this argument. I'm going to put this new one together. And, and then people yeah. love it. Well, remember I'm a recovering Reagan conservative who has gone to the other side. And, and now I'm, facing i used to be a neocon and now i'm a kind of 
you know, anti-neocon or whatever you want to call me. I'm, you know, I'm a race man who's come back around. And, you know, so I've got the I've got a religious fervor uh, to it. And it's a little bit in your face. It's a little bit, you know, you guys read Commentary Magazine, do you? Well, let me tell you what I think about that. <laughs> I didn't talk about Israel. I didn't. Yeah, well, that. <laughs> but if I had, the affect would have been exactly. Well, the same. I think the reaction might have been different. If 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 that. Oh, no, no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on to the next one. It's it, this is, I think, a kind of similar theme, but a different emphasis. So I'm interested to see um, what. Okay. We'll come up with. Here. All right. In a, in a country founded at the end of the 18th century, inspired by Enlightenment ideals, an account had to be given of how it is that such an institution of human degradation could be consistent with those ideals. And in short, that account was these are not fully human beings that we deal with here. That's the only way. They had, at least tacitly and more often than not explicitly, to be understood as not quite fully human beings, lest the question would arise and could not be put to rest, how then can we treat them this way and still call ourselves a nation that loves freedom? Well, I say this about that. In Orlando Patterson, the great historical sociologist at Harvard in his book, 1982 book, Slavery and Social Death, has said much better than I ever will. I say this. Slavery, then, is not just the relation of property. It's not just ownership in human bodies. It is that, but it's not only that, because property relations can be abrogated by changing the, the rules of, uh, of uh, law. You can amend the Constitution. You can emancipate, right? You can make it so that people are no longer property. You can refuse to enforce those contracts at law. Slavery was also a social system of racial domination hierarchic ordering of society and etching into the fabric of the nation's symbolic life of the hierarchic ranking of these persons. Right? And so it was possible for me sitting in my hotel room watching AMC just the other morning to see one of those early Shirley Temple movies come on the screen. This is 1932, 33 or 34, whatever. Okay, it's early. And there's a black character in the movie who is a buffoon. He's there for comic relief. He and the dog are there for comic relief. That's in this century. Again, this is not a harangue. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm talking about how profoundly deep was this symbolism of hierarchy, how taken for granted it was in the ordering of our nation's affairs. This might help us to understand how it was possible that as industrial capitalism was expanding at the end of the 19th and into the beginning of the 20th century, increasing profoundly the demands for labor, how it was possible that those factories could be manned by peasants from Southern and Eastern Europe who came in the tens of millions and God loved them. While the American five, six, seven generation born peasants in the South of our own great nation could be kept at the social margin. How it was possible for there to be a race debate in the first decades of this century, when the question was, could the races of the Italians, the Greeks, the Jews, and the, uh, the Slavs be integrated into the nation of North Americans? That was the debate. That was the melting pot debate between 1890 and 1930 in this country. Right? While tens of millions of Americans 
well, a good 10 and a half million of them anyway, sat uh, outside the debate, their race so profoundly other that the question of their place within the larger polity wouldn't even come up for another 25 years, wouldn't come up indeed until we had defeated the Nazis, a racial regime, bid in a Cold War against uh, an implacable communist foe to present ourselves as the leader of the free world and then said, oops, well, I don't suppose we can do that and preside over a regime of apartheid at the same time, can we? Right? And only then, in the middle of this century, only then, in the middle of this century, do we begin to get that work started. Can it be any surprise then now, here we sit at the end of the century, that that work's not done? That's all I say, the work's not done. He's got a strong argument. Now, so I picked this one because I, th I think I'm right in saying that you probably would not dis disagree with that history that's no. laid out today. It's the end. Certainly. Yeah. That, exactly. That, that's my question. Is the work done? Yeah. So I would not disagree, certainly, with the characterization of the history. I was defending the framing of the book uh, as having racial stigma as one of the elemental factors. And I was basically just repeating the argument from the book about where I think that stigma came from. I think it came from slavery. And I think it was an absolute necessity in the socio-political, cultural makeup of the United States that the Africans had to be seen as not quite are full human equals. Otherwise, you couldn't square holding them in uh, bondage while at the same time affirming, uh, you know, your ideal as the land of the free and the home of the brave. I mean, that, that's just, you know, basic logic. And I do follow Orlando Patterson in this, and uh, I think it's a profound insight about American political culture coming out of the 18th century. So, you know, standing by that, um, and the history of the late 19th and early 20th century that I gloss at there, I'm not a historian, but I, I think I'm standing on pretty firm ground to say, uh, I, I think of Khalil Muhammad's book, The Condemnation of Blackness, as a, an illustration of this point. The book is written and published after I gave that lecture, but it's confirmation of the point of view I take in that lecture. I mean, the blacks and the Southern and Eastern European immigrants weren't seen on the same ground they would the, the immigrants were suitable for settlement house uh administration to be incorporated into the normal american polity the blacks were an indigestible lump in the you know a cultural uh, deviance uh you know not not reformable in some way has the work been done i was it was only 20 years ago that's not such a long time is it that i was saying the work's not yet done has the work been done it seems pretty clear that there remains work to be done. Um, I think I can learn something from the old Glenn uh, about that. I'm much more focused on the work that we African-Americans need to do, much less clear about what the social, public, national work is with respect to this issue, and certainly not signing on to let's do the work the way that the uh, Robin D'Angelo of uh, white fragility or Kamala Harris in a speech, let's do the work would, would mean let's do the work is let's do the work uh, implementing 
the racially progressive vision of uh, 2022? I, I wouldn't say so, you know, but um, I, you're giving me a lot to think about here. I, it's the question about what the work is, right? Yeah. Th that's, that's the, if we agree, and I don't think there's anything in that narrative that you presented that progressives would disagree with um today and there's nothing that you disagree with more or less that's right today right so one of the interesting things is like someone like you can come you know you can say like oh we agree about the history we just kind of at least to a point um maybe maybe around mid 60s early 70s you start to diverge a little bit but up to that point that is for most of the history we agree on it so so the question is what does the work consist of Right, you're going to get one answer from Robin D'Angelo. You're going to get another answer from Glenn Lowry, and you've answered some of that in 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 your recent, you know, uh, essays and speeches and things like that. But I think that maybe if that if if the old Glenn could talk to you, he'd go like, "Well, okay, that's all well and good, like on an individual level, right? But the work is is the work of a national project." And no matter how, no matter, let's say that every person in the country magically started abiding by your kind of recommendations, I have a feeling it still would not um, pan out the way that maybe it, we'd like to see it pan out. So what is that remainder? Well, so if I were um, a uh, leftist, I'm not. But I, I am not without sympathy for the project I'm about to describe. Let's create a decent society because I'm married to a woman who enunciates this project on a daily basis. And when are we going to get Lawan on the podcast, Glenn? We're working the, on that. The people, that. the people demand Lawan. <laughs> they do. They do indeed. <laughs> uh, and she's constantly saying to me, will you please put down the culture war cudgel and get busy building a decent society here? People need health care. Uh, people need income security. Uh, people need uh, uh, education. Uh, people need housing. Uh, our sentences are too long and our, our response to criminal deviation is too punitive, um, et cetera. She's a Bernie Sanders, socialist-leaning, left-of-center uh, political junkie. And that program is, could be the work. The work could be, let's take a good look at the social safety net in uh, the United States. Let's compare it to what we see in other wealthy countries in Northern Europe. Uh, there could be more social security, broadly understood, more of a cohesive compact of mutual support. Um, and uh, we can quibble about it. We can, you know, I know taxes can't be 90% because there are incentive effects and we have to think about the consequences of uh, any uh, regime of public provision. But if you did that work, then uh, the terrible blight in the lives of so many people of color that can be attributed to our ignoble history would be significantly ameliorated. That could be the work. So, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not four square behind that program either, 
but perhaps I should be. But one thing's clear. I am much more sympathetic to that in my mind. I'm much more sympathetic to that progressive program than I am, am to diversity uh, and inclusion seminars that teach white people about how not to be racist. I think you find, I know you find a lot of people on the left who agree with you about that. Who agree with that. Um, yeah. For the most part. And it seems like those people are getting a little bit more traction. You know, um, their voices are getting a little bit louder. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens when that position gets a little bit more mainstream um, and that kind of advocacy starts to really compete with the kind of Robin D'Angelo, whatever, of, you know, and, and I think there's good things about c certain aspects of that, of that program too, you know, not, not everything. And certainly it's overstated and certainly a lot of it is, counterproductive bordering on nonsensical um but you know i think that i don't know i i think that that the thing that you outlined is, is something that's probably a lot more popular than it seems like it is if all you're doing is you know reading x y or z person that we could talk about yeah yeah well okay i think the the issues have been drawn uh and I think it's been a constructive exercise, uh, Mark. I hope you agree. I do agree. And I think that hopefully we're going to be doing more of these kinds of things, maybe not, uh, you know, maybe not conversations like this, but more kinds of stuff on the sub stack um, to yeah. kind of produce some, uh, you know, make some, uh, get some interesting stuff out of this, uh, out of this relation. Okay. Well, I mean, we could let a little time go by, but there's that, uh, speech on mass incarceration uh, that has a similar potential to draw contrast between the old and the new. Yeah. So we should pursue that. Totally. All right, Glenn. It's been great talking to you. Hey, Mark. And I'll talk Many to you. thanks. Yep. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.